Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Politico Nerdcast, which some people, many people actually, are saying is the best political podcast out there. It is January 19th, the day before the inauguration of President-elect Donald Trump, and we are going to dive right into that event and what we're watching as this administration begins couple of quick notes before we get going. We love hearing from our listeners. So if you have a question you'd like to ask, please email nerdcast at politico.com. And if you enjoy the Nerdcast, please subscribe and rate us and write a written review, if you can, on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And while you're at it, share this episode on Facebook or your favorite social media app. Here are the numbers that mattered this week. 25, that's the approximate expected length in minutes of Trump's inaugural address, the traditional tone setter for a new president. 29. That's the number of Senate-confirmable government appointees that Trump's administration has made out of 690 so far. And we'll talk about how that'll affect his government getting off the ground and what his team is doing to mitigate any issues. And our final number, 40. That's the president-elect's favorable rating, according to Gallup and the polling averages, which is lower than any recent incoming president, but perhaps, for reasons we'll discuss, less consequential than any other recent president, too, at least for the moment. With that, let's welcome back our panel. Uh, hello to transition guru Nancy Cook. Hey, Scott. White House correspondent Eli Stokels. Morning. And a, a special welcome to national political reporter Eliana Johnson, who's making her Nerdcast debut. Thanks. Hey, Scott. <laughs> uh, all right, let's jump into our first data point. Uh, as we just discussed in the intro, that data point is 25. That's the estimated number of minutes or, or the over-under uh, of Donald Trump's inaugural address that's taking place on Friday, according to his aides. Uh, Eli, start us off. What are the expected themes of this speech? You know, there's some mixed messages in the word that's out there versus, you know, more kind of sweeping, unifying, conventional inaugural address versus more of a, a kind of uh, policy prescription focused one. Yeah, shocker, mixed messages, right? I mean, like, where to begin on this? This is, um, you know, I mean, tomorrow he's going to take the oath and walk out there and look at out at the mall and, and, and give the speech. And I think uh, it's unclear exactly what he's going to say. We, we have a sense from listening to him, uh, you know, over the course of the better part of two years that some of it will be a little off the cuff that he will try to stick to the teleprompter and recognize the kind of gravity and importance of the moment. Uh, but yes, we've heard that it's going to be a very short speech relative to what people typically see in these inaugural addresses, 20, 25 minutes. Um, that's different. And I think, you know, yes, Sean Spicer has said he's going to t try to unify the country. Other people in the transition have said, you know, don't expect a lot of soaring rhetoric. It's Donald Trump, even though Steve Bannon wrote some of that into his stump speech at the end of the campaign. And there were big sweeping themes about America first, et cetera, et cetera. Um, he may talk a little more about policy in this speech uh, in terms of just sort of broad outlines, which is, you know, Trump paints always in big, broad brushstrokes. Um, he's going to talk about economic growth. He's going to talk about national security, may go into immigration, talk about Obamacare, things that are already moving in Congress and try to give a sense that, um, you know, things are happening. I'm not going to give a long speech. Let's get to work. 
even though he's not going to go to work officially really until Monday. But that's kind of the the gist that sort of, you know, I, what we generally have heard. Nancy, have you heard differently about what to expect in the speech? No, no, that's basically what I've heard. I just think, you know, it'll be so interesting because at all of his rallies, um, you know, all of his thank you rallies after he got elected, they were really divisive speeches that he gave and they were also so long. You know, he would spend just 30 minutes of those speeches recounting how he actually got elected. And so, you know, if he's going to give a 25 minute speech that you know, really cuts down that whole time. And it'll be interesting to see if he falls back on those same themes that he did in the thank you rallies or if he'll look ahead. Yeah, I think the, you know, it's interesting, the, the 20 to 25 minute range that we're seeing, it's it's actually, it's not particularly different than what we've seen in past inaugural addresses, according to our ACE researcher, Zach Montalaro, you know, Obama's 2013 speech clocked in at around 20 minutes, so is 2009. I feel like it's important to remember it's often cold at these things in, in Washington, um, but it, it's going to be very different stylistically from from what uh, Trump has done in the past, like, like you just said. It, what I think is so interesting is that Trump sort of threw out the playbook um, during his campaign, and he was really known for his totally unscripted approach. Most candidates on the campaign trail, uh, it's incredibly boring to cover them because they give the same speech before every audience across the country. Trump didn't do that. He spoke off the cuff and was uh, tremendously talented and entertaining to watch doing that. But the inaugural address has historically been something different. It's been scripted, stayed, um, and something that is aimed really at unifying the country after, um, you know, what has been a, a divisive election season. That's not really what Trump has been known for doing. And I think it'll be interesting to see whether he departs from what has been his approach to do something uh, a little bit different or whether he continues to throw out the playbook and you, you make history and depart from tradition uh, at, at in terms of what he's been doing. So does he ditch the raucous rhetoric for something more subdued? Or does he uh, does he stick to his uh, signature style? I think it is worth noting that on election night, he came out and he gave, uh, I think to the surprise of many people, a pretty unifying speech. His uh, stayed message. Yeah, and his, his speechwriter, actually, Stephen Miller, had put in a lot of... Um, negative, more divisive lines, and Trump personally crossed them out. And so well, I wonder if in his inaugural address, we'll see something a little bit different. It does seem to me like Trump is actually pretty talented at knowing what tone to strike and when. Well, he I mean, he's always done this. You could see him doing this at rallies. Um, that's exactly right. He will read a crowd and he will gauge the reaction. And he, you can see the hamster going around the wheel in his head as he sits out there, tiptoes towards something controversial, walks it back, you know, apologize. I mean, he sort of, you know, gives himself a lot of wiggle room. I don't know that... Uh, that this will be as much of an ad lib as those rallies were, because I think Trump will uh, be sobered somewhat by the gravity of the moment, by the history that's being made. I mean, even a guy like Trump, who is, uh, you know, a narcissist to the nth degree, can recognize and probably be humbled somewhat by the power of that moment by standing out there. It becomes very real, I would imagine, when you're standing out there. And, you know, he did strike a remarkably unifying tone, especially for him, in that 
address on election night, but the 80-day transition, we haven't seen much of that, right? It's not a natural fit for him. It's hard to see him coming out and saying, ask not what your country can do for you. Hard to see any, any lines like that that we're going to remember for those reasons from Donald Trump, but he also is pretty good at surprising us. Eliana? Well, the difference, I think, too, is that on the campaign trail, Trump was always speaking to crowds of supporters. This crowd is going to be a little bit different. Yes, there will be supporters, but there will also be on hand several living presidents and several, um, you know, hundreds of Democrats in the audience. And so when you talk about his ability to read a crowd, I think he's well aware of that. He was obviously humbled and a little bit nervous to be in the Oval Office with President Obama. He's talked about his constructive relationship with Obama, how nice, literally use the word nice, how nice the Obamas have been to him. And so I think he's somebody who uh, actually understands social situations, even though he defies social convention all the time. Um, I think he's aware of his defiance of social convention. And so uh, I do think it will be fascinating to see how he maneuvers through all of this. Nancy, what's going, we were talking about this before. What's mm-hmm. gone on, uh, you know, in, in terms of the crafting of this speech? Uh, what's been going on behind the scenes, obviously, beyond the, 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 the tweet or Instagram post that, that Trump put out the other day of him, you know, writing longhand on a, on a legal pad in Mar-a-Lago? So Stephen Miller, who is going to be the White House uh, top policy person, has been crafting the inaugural speech, and he's been doing it for a while. He's been working on it since you know, late December, early January. Um, Yesterday, Sean Spicer sort of clarified, he's the incoming White House press secretary, that Trump himself was writing it with the aid of Stephen Miller and Kellyanne Conway and a bunch of other aides. But it's really been Stephen Miller that has been working on it. And he wrote a Trump speech for the RNC, and he tends to write Trump's more divisive speeches. So as Eliana brought up, I guess the question will be like, will you know, behind the scenes, Trump cross out some of Stephen Miller's sort of more divisive things, but he has been driving the crafting. I loved also that Trump posted a picture of himself yeah. dressed in a suit <laughs> and sitting behind a desk with a notepad. It's like, yes. yeah, I'm sure he like puts on a suit and sits down with a white pad to, to write his speech uh, in, in longhand. Well, a desk at Mar-a-Lago right. in front of the Spanish <laughs> tile where generally that's the desk where people go and they the person sitting behind there is booking massages for the guest. <laughs> it's in the lobby. I mean, it's It hard. did look like that. But yeah. I think it's fascinating and it, it speaks to I mean, this is a guy who communicates in images as much as he does with his words, right? Twitter, 140 character limit. That's his preferred medium. Imagery is hugely important to him. And I think that this is one of these moments where um, for the first time, the imagery of the presidency, we will see Trump in that context. We, we've seen him. We recognize him taking the stage at his rallies. We recognize him being in the gilded confines of Trump Tower. We have yet to see him step out onto, you know, into one of those tableaus that we have seen other presidents in, standing at the Capitol, looking out at the mall, giving a speech in the Oval Office, walking into the Oval Office, you know, being there. As he inhabits these spaces that we all recognize culturally um, and associate with with the presidency, you know, they're just now confronting the fact that now he's the insider, right? Now he's the president. This is a guy who's outsider um, mantra, his, his, you know, I don't really know politics, I'm just a normal guy. That worked for him. That shielded him from so many crit- critiques and attacks and from, you know, it was like, well, he doesn't really know. He's not. But that's going to fall away over time because people are going to start to see him as a president, even if it's hard for some people to imagine. People are going to get used to seeing Donald Trump in these situations. And I think that's something they're grappling with as they figure out how to 
present him on the stage in that speech. It's actually not dissimilar from what happened to Obama, where the consummate uh, outsider who campaigned against uh, politics as it is uh, becomes over time the insider and the embodiment of a sort of political establishment. That's a great point. So this is the beginning of that that journey really happening happening on Inauguration Day. Eli, I want to bring uh, a little more data into the conversation. You wrote a story uh, this week off a, uh, a poll that Politico is now conducting in conjunction with the Harvard School of Public Health. And it was looking, you know, if this uh, if this speech does end up uh, being a little more policy focused, even if it doesn't, you know, certainly the, the first days of the administration are going to be there's there's a pretty big divide uh, between, you know, some of what what uh, self-identified Trump voters are calling their top priorities versus what the uh, uh, general public is. Can you walk us through those numbers a little bit? Sure. Uh, Harvard did this poll and it was unique as a poll in that it split people into Trump voters and non-Trump voters. And it looked at the the dichotomy, the differences between their priorities and people who voted for Hillary Clinton or didn't vote or, or who, you know, everybody who else who wasn't a Trump voter. And other polls generally, when they look at public opinion, they average all these people together and they say, what's, what's the top priority? And everybody says jobs. Everybody says infrastructure. With the Trump voters, those things ranked far lower down the list. The highest priority was for, you know, people were basically, well, what are the top six priorities? Well, the biggest thing uh, was repealing Obamacare. 85% of Trump voters want Obamacare repealed. As far as replacing it, that's a little more muddled. They basically just want the thing gone. Uh, 78% of people who voted for Trump list dramatic action to curb legal, illegal immigration as a top priority. Only 38% of the general public sees that as a priority. Boosting defense spending, huge priority. 68% uh, of Trump voters say that matters. Only 43% of the public really care if we uh, boost defense spending. The number on, on, on uh, Obamacare repeal, 85%. That's the top number. Want Obamacare repealed. Only 44% of the general public uh, sees it similarly. And I think what you have is just, you, you know, again, it's no surprise. This is a very divided country. Our politics, especially at the presidential level, it's a pretty zero-sum game, right? To the winner go the spoils. And he has never, right, throughout the campaign, we'd always say, oh, is he going to pivot? Is he? There's no pivot with Donald Trump. And there's a transition, but there's no transition of his uh, you know, mode of thinking, his outlook, his politics. And you heard him last week in the press conference when he was asked about his tax returns and he said, people don't care. And they said, how do you know? You know, and he said, I won. I mean, he won. He's going to follow a very conservative agenda that reflects the priorities of his voters, whether that is, um, you know, really reflective of a broader swath of the country. It doesn't seem like I it. would challenge your, your use of the word conservative agenda. Uh, right. You know, he wants to go through <laughs> yeah. with this infrastructure pack package that I think is going to rankle fiscal conservatives. And Trump is he's remaking the Republican Party in his own image. He said it's the Republican Party. It's not the conservative party. And I think uh, that is that is going to be the the tagline or the mantra of his administration. I think I mean the the really interesting thing that I take from all those poll numbers, Eli, is this is why a lot of inaugural addresses don't deal all that much with policy and talk more in sweeping thematic terms uh, about this sort of stuff. And, you know, it'll it'll be interesting to see exactly which direction uh, that ends up going. Nancy, you want the last word? Yeah, well, just we've seen with even the Obamacare repeal so far. I mean, uh, Trump has given, uh, he gave an interview to the Washington Post on Sunday where he talked about some of his plans for repealing Obamacare and how he was going to try to repeal and replace it simultaneously and how they had this plan in mind that they're going to unveil. I mean, all of this is like totally at odds with both what is realistic on Capitol Hill and what 
Capitol Hill Republicans actually have in their own minds of what they're going to do. And so I think one of the challenges just for policy for the first 100 days is the Republicans really face the potential of sort of some internal warfare over these policy things like Obamacare, infrastructure, tax reform, those things. That is actually a great jumping off point to our next data point, uh, where we're going to talk a little bit about the beginning of this Trump administration, what's what's going to be happening. And uh, the, the data point I, I want to use there is 29. And that's the number of Senate confirmable positions out of 690 uh, that have been named so far by the Trump administration. That's according to the Partnership for Public Service, uh, which is an, an organization cited by uh, Politico and a story earlier this week. And, and among that is uh, zero, number flagged by Eliana, that's the number of deputy and undersecretaries named so far at the Departments of Defense and State, which are somewhat important uh, from what I've heard. So Eliana, let's <laughs> let's start with you. I mean, how unusual is this? Is, you know, is, is it... How, how does this compare to, you know, other administrations' efforts to get off the ground? And what does it mean for the Trump administration's, you know, desire to get up and running very, very quickly? It's unusual. And I think we can add to this, Scott, Sean Spicer's announcement um, in the press conference this morning that they've asked uh, over two dozen Obama administration officials to stay on because so many of these positions, senior positions in the state and defense department's uh, top national security positions remain unfilled. Um, I think what we're starting to see is that there's a pretty limited information flow up to Donald Trump. Um, All the information is flowing up to basically three people, um, his chief strategist, Stephen Bannon, um, his chief of staff, Reince Priebus, and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who will be a senior advisor in the White House. And nearly all of these uh, hundreds of names are going up through them. And there's really seems to be a bottleneck. I think they spend a tremendous, tremendous amount of time uh, vetting names and in some cases exacting vendettas over um, against people who... Um, they perceive to have uh, opposed them, in some cases who did oppose them on the campaign trail. Trump alluded to this, uh, not even alluded, he said explicitly last night, um, you know, he holds grudges against people who opposed him on the campaign, which I think is perfectly fair in some cases, but these are the sorts of things he's thinking about. Um, And I think the result has been that his Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis, and his Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, they have resisted the people who the transition is pushing onto them uh, for these senior positions at the state and defense departments. And they're banking on once they are confirmed and they are Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis, they will have um, the power to hire their own aides. They won't be subject to the people that the transition is pushing on them. Um, so this has been a real sticking point. But the result is that uh, come Friday, uh, when Trump is inaugurated and sworn in, uh, these very senior positions at uh, the State and Defense Department are, are going to be wide open. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems the, you know, in past uh, transitions, there's been some friction between, you know, I know going back to the George W. Bush administration, a lot of the uh, deputy secretaries or undersecretaries had, you know, the, the, the transition, the incoming White House had ideas for uh, who they wanted to be. And that ended up causing some friction among the principals of those departments. But it, it, it's more of a, uh, the, the, this bottleneck issue that you're describing uh, sounds, sounds like a really big holdup. Well, it's also just a problem because it speaks to just a larger issue that they're going to have actually running the federal government. I mean, if you have to have sort of every deputy secretary name go through, 
you know, Jared Kushner, Steve Bannon and Reince Priebus and also like all these policy decisions and all these things, it's really hard to run this huge sprawling bureaucracy and to run federal agencies and to get all the people in place. And so I feel like they've set up this very West Wing centric, uh, you know, operation. And at some point, you know, as I'm talking to people in the transition and donors and people close to them, at some point, the sense is, is that they're going to have to give more power to either the cabinet heads or the deputies and just also let the federal agencies, you know, do their own work. Like if you want to repeal and replace Obamacare, for instance, you're going to have to have some people at HHS involved in it. You can't just have, you know, Steve Bannon running all of it. And that, that's a stated goal, right? To kind of give the cabinet a wide berth, right, Eli? Yeah, it is a stated goal, but it doesn't really align with the way they have always operated, which is a very small insular group at the top and power concentrated there and not a lot of trust for, you know, beyond the people who they know are in their inner circle. And so I think that just is not how you run a federal government. Uh, you know, you can say we're running it lean, but when things start to fall apart, that's not going to be good for Donald Trump. It may be good for Vladimir Putin. It's not going to be good for the, for Trump politically or for, you know, for the federal government because people are going to see this thing not working and the wheels kind of coming off. I think it's interesting at this press conference this morning, Vice President-elect Mike Pence talking about, you know, we've done a great job. We're on time and under budget with this transition, talking about we are returning 20 percent of the, the, the federal funds to pay for the transition to the federal government. Well, great. But have they appointed even 20 percent of the the you know, people to, to the jobs that actually have to be confirmed. I mean, there are so many empty positions. I, they may have saved 20% of the money, but I don't know if they've done 20% of the work in terms of naming and filling out uh, the, these, these, you know, federal agencies. And so I think that's really a question is where does that leave this government in terms of, you know, really executing on, on this agenda. Nancy? Well, and just quickly to circle back to Eliana's point, I mean, leaving open key slots in national security positions is exactly, you know, what, that's what Trump, Trump people elected him in part because Trump voters elected him because they thought he would be strong on national security and leaving those slots open, leaving a lot of slots open at Treasury when he was also uh, elected on economic messages. You know, that doesn't really send a good signal even to his supporters and just gives Democrats a ton of uh, ammunition. Well, I think what we're seeing here that that's so interesting is that um, the presumption in Trump world is zero access. And it leads into um, the difficulty in filling these slots. So um, the exception is the people, the few people, uh, Reince Priebus, Steve Bannon, um, Jared Kushner, who have free flowing access and a real uh, rapport with Trump. The presumption is no access. That includes the press and many others. Um, it includes, you know, undersecretaries, deputy secretaries. I think that's why there's been such an issue uh, getting people in these jobs. This is, you know, very insular uh, and somewhat isolated uh, group of people. And that reflects, I think, who Trump is. He's not someone known to uh, have a lot of friends or to be very social. I think he's a somewhat insular and isolated person. Um, in, in contrast, I think, to the typical uh, image of a, of a politician that we know, Obama, I think, to some extent was that way. Uh, Obama's press conference yesterday where he praised the press, um, I thought was somewhat disingenuous because he's actually, uh, he's this has been one of the least transparent administrations in history. He was very hostile to the press. And the image that really stood out to me was when he uh, greeted Trump uh, and 
walked him through the White House and they uh, they greeted the press and he uh, he uh, he put his hand on Trump's back and said, don't take their questions. I think they have somewhat similar attitudes, though Trump is an extreme, certainly, but similar attitudes toward the press, um, you know, a sense of sort of disdain toward the press. And they're actually both somewhat, um, you know, not extremely social people. Trump, obviously, an extreme of this, but there are certain similarities that I don't think have been fully appreciated. So that's now that that explains some of this slowness of, of staffing. However, Nancy, you know the the transition and the incoming administration has done uh, some things to to mitigate this. Tell us about tell us about the beachhead teams. Tell us what that means. Yeah, so they you know they're always sort of trying to show that they are like on top of things in in a way. Um, you know, they tried to show that they were really on top of these cabinet hearings, and some of those have gone well, some of them haven't. Um, thankfully, they have a Republican Congress that will push through a lot of their nominees. But similarly, they're trying to show that they're really prepared for the handoff to the federal government. So they have these beachhead teams, which are people who are political appointees who are basically going to go into each federal agency at 12.01 on Inauguration Day. Uh, We've been told that some of them have been told to skip the inauguration entirely, to be at their desk in the federal agency, basically to take over the handoff of power. And they have 520 people so far on uh, these teams. And so that's just one way I think they're trying to show that, um, you know, they are on top of it. The question, of course, is like, do those people, all of them, have the security clearances do they need? You know, uh, are is 520 people enough? Do they need more, um, you know, across every single agency? So I think some of that will just have to play out in the next week as we see how the handoff actually goes. Mm-hmm. And the, the role that these folks are going to be playing is to, you know, execute and uh, some of the kind of first wave of executive orders and actions that, that – uh, the president-elect Donald Trump wants to take um, once he's in there. So, you know, the, these priorities, I, I think it's interesting, actually. There, there's, you know, the, the Washington Post wrote uh, this week that what exactly he's going to do on day one is is a closely held secret. Uh, because and, and Eli, this gets to kind of the Donald Trump show, right, aspect of, of everything he does. He's very attuned to uh, the, maybe he doesn't like the, the press all that much, as Eliana said, but he's very attuned to the way media works and how to how to work it in his favor oh he's a i mean basically he's a media he's a media creature the media made him he's obsessed with media i mean even to this you know point now uh, he spends more time watching tv i mean people go into his office and the first thing he'll say is like oh i see you do you do very well on morning joe you know he'll, he, he consumes so much media um you know that's sort of what he's always reacting to. That's why there's so many responses. He's he's tweeting the the news in real time a lot of the times when he's out there saying, "This NBC news story is very unfair," and this is <laughs> CNN's failing. I mean, he's he attacks the media as much as anybody, and it does serve him politically. One of the like, you know, probably the biggest foil that he has at the moment um, until there are you know bigger skirmishes uh, with people in Congress. But you know, this is who Donald Trump has always been. And and I think it's that's not going to change. It may be unusual in the presidency, but I think it, it also adds, it sort of, you know, just sort of compounds the insularity uh, that, you know, Eliana talked about. The Washington Post wrote a good story about the fact that he spent most of the transition secluded up in his office or behind the gates at Bedminster or at Mar-a-Lago. And, you know, when he went out and did things, he went to the states that he won to hold rallies with supporters, right? There's not a lot of outreach beyond um, 
his comfort zone and he has a lot of people come to him and I think that's you know does that change does the office change him you know obviously we're gonna have to wait and see but but this is a guy who who people have known a long time say this is the guy I've known for years he's not going to change so uh, the specific actions and the order in which they'll take place and what will happen on day one versus day three might be a bit of a mystery but we know what his priorities are right Eliana I mean what what is what is the stuff that the the Trump White House wants to get done via executive order really start you know pushing on the hill sending to the hill right off the bat once he's inaugurated They've already mentioned a few things. The vice president-elect Mike Pence already talking about an executive order or two that would um, begin the building of a fence on the border. Um, And he said that that could actually be done through an executive order um, without the cooperation of Congress because there was actually a law um, passed in 2006 that... um, called for the building of a border fence that was never followed through on. And so I think that's something that we'll see. Um, the I think we'll see the beginning of the repeal and replacement of, uh, of Obamacare, though that I think will be a two to three to four year long process and nobody right now, I think there's a great deal of confusion about how exactly that's going to work out. Uh, nobody exactly knows, but I think certainly uh, those are the two uh, main things the administration is going to tackle. And what's unclear to me exactly is, is how uh, an infrastructure package is going to work, because that's something that's going to that's going to have to be driven from the White House. And it's not exactly clear to me how policy is going to flow um, from the West Wing. You're saying it has to be driven by the White House because, because Republicans Congress in Congress is not going to drive an enormous infrastructure package. Uh, Republicans in Congress, that's not something they're huge fans of. I think they'd be they would, I know, be willing to give deference to Trump in these first six months. But certainly that's going to have to that's going to have to um, emerge from the White House and uh, they're, they're going to have to push it through. Congress. Nancy? Well, I also feel like some of the things that he's going to do next week or in the first few weeks will be sort of these proactive executive orders and proactive regulations. But I also think we're just going to also see him kill off a lot of the regulations that Obama put out in the last 60 days. There's this um, congressional act that sort of gives them the power to do it. And so I think we'll also see things like, you know, undoing the overtime payment rule out of the Department of Labor. And so it will be just like a great undoing as well. There's already a lot of consternation on Capitol Hill. I mean, Eliana's right. They're, they're going to give him a honeymoon. There are no Republicans who are really watching these confirmation hearings many of which are a mess and are sitting there really reconsidering their votes. Nobody wants to sort of put their thumb in Trump's eye early on because they do have this opportunity to do big things and they want to sort of have this peace hold between Republicans uh, on the Hill and the White House. And, you know, this does. But there, there are a lot of tensions there, right? Not with leadership and with the White House and a, and a, a president-elect who continues to sort of say things to the press in his interviews, Nancy mentioned this earlier, but talking about you know Obamacare and coverage for everybody. Uh, a day later, talking to the Wall Street Journal and talking about you know the 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 tax reform package and taking issues with a big part of the a cornerstone of Paul Ryan's tax plan. And and people in those off you know the policy people, their heads explode whenever he does this. I think the plan is to just go on and, and push the agenda where they have stuff in the works that they've worked out and the policy folks have worked on. They're going to push it through and hope that Trump you know, signs it and, 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 and gets the talking points uh, right as we go along. But, you know, beyond that, infrastructure is, is an area where you're really going to start to see uh, the sort of stress points on these relationships between um, 
the the sort of different sides of the Republican Party. I mean, a lot of people look at this and see the Trump Republicans who are sort of nationalist and less ideologically moored, and then the sort of more traditional conservatives. And the traditional conservatives are not going to be all that enthused about spending a billion dollars on infrastructure. Um, you know, you might see as this pertains to what to do with Medicaid. I mean, there are all sorts of questions. Obamacare, the repeal of Obamacare and tax reform were supposed to be low-hanging fruit that, that they could do early and that they would find consensus on. I think that consensus, even among Republicans on those issues, uh, may be harder to achieve than, you know, what's been initially portrayed. It's going to be really interesting to see how Trump's, as you said, and as Eliana said, how Trump's role in all this evolves, right? There was a, a great anecdote uh, in National Review uh, this week on, on health care from uh, Yuval Levine. Um, Saying that after and here's a here's a quote from the story after Rand Paul announced he had spoken with Trump who agreed with him about making repeal and replace simultaneous one congressional staffer suggested at a Capitol Hill meeting on health care that his boss could call Trump and get him to say the opposite and you know the like you said Alian with with, um, with a certainly with an infrastructure package but with all sorts of, of legislative uh, action there typically there there is very strong. Uh, guidance from from the White House on this, and and at this point, it it doesn't seem like you know we talked during the campaign. There was this construct of uh, view, taking Trump uh, literally versus taking him seriously, which I think was a great way to describe how voters saw him. But in, in terms of how uh, in in terms of his interactions with policymakers, with members of Congress. Uh, with pretty much anyone else. I don't know entirely how, how that works, and it certainly doesn't seem to be working so far. Yeah, I mean, I just think on the healthcare question, like this is a perfect example. I mean, healthcare policy is super complicated and super wonky, and I feel like based on statements that Trump has made about, you know, giving coverage to everyone and not letting people die in the streets, and, you know, um, I think that he just doesn't really have a grasp of the policy details a lot of times and, like, makes these promises, and then Republicans on Capitol Hill are sent into a tizzy because they realize that some of the things he says are totally incompatible with either Republican orthodoxy or with actual policy plans. And so I feel like we'll just keep, keep continuing to see this play out over and over again. And I, I think Trump doesn't have like a great grasp of policy details and that might trip him up. I mean, he keeps, you know, he's, he's approaching these interviews the same way he does, you know, his rallies like we talked about. He's kind of searching for the right answer and the right response and trying to figure out what the right answer is in real time. And that's what I think leads to a lot of the mixed messages. Eliana, last word on this? Yeah, look, a, a lot of members of Congress, and I think Speaker Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, they think because Trump is essentially a blank slate on a lot of policy issues, this presents them with an enormous opportunity to drive policy in the Trump era. They said that during the campaign. I think they still believe that now. Um, but the truth is, uh, Trump's relationship to Twitter, um, it's one thing when he picks a fight with somebody and litigates it on Twitter. It's entirely another thing when you confront the possibility that Congress could pursue a repeal and replace strategy that unfolds over um, eight months or a year and Trump could take to Twitter and say, oh, I'm going to veto that. I don't like it. And there's really nothing that a Paul Ryan or a Mitch McConnell or a Ryan's Priebus could do about that. I think uh I think Paul Ryan and Reince Priebus believe that their uh, close relationship that has, um, you know, they've had for many, many years uh, could keep that in check. But ultimately, I'm not really sure, you know, Trump's, uh, uh, we've seen him twice this week, uh, upend sort of the well-laid plans of his aides and members of Congress on Obamacare uh, when he tweets about policy. And I think that potentially um, it 
adds a real element of uncertainty and possibly uh, chaos to uh, Republican policy plans in the Trump era. All right, that's a great place to leave that and transition into our next segment. Our third data point, that's 40. And that's the percentage of Americans who view Trump favorably on the eve of his presidency, according to Gallup. And that's outnumbered not only by his unfavorable rating, which stands at a majority, 55%. It's lower than any other recent incoming president. But here's here's the thing I've been wondering. I mean, does does this matter? You know, traditionally, uh, approval ratings have been important. They've been a proxy because uh, they, they've been kind of a... Uh, a proxy measurement for how bold a president and his party could be on policy for how willing, uh, you know, members of Congress from from that party were to uh, kind of give them a little bit of a leash and go with them on policy and stuff like that. But Republicans in Congress right now are are perfect. You know, they all have mandates of their own. Right. And they're all pushing uh, ahead with everything. So, Eli, I mean, what what if anything does does the approval rating mean at this point? Sorry, we're going to keep following it because because we love polls, but right, it is fascinating and it's very complicated. It's hard to really know at this point, but you do have these sort of competing impulses because a lot of rank and file Republicans understand Trump's power, right? They're afraid of him. They don't want to be targeted if they run afoul of him. They don't want him to tweet about them. They don't want him to, you know, he 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 jumped into an Ohio chairman's race earlier this month and and basically took it away from the the chairman and and gave it to somebody who was uh, a you know a supporter of him. And this is a Republican party That's that had right. won most everything while this chairman had been That's in right, power. That's right, but it right? was a Kasich person, and 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 so there was a score to settle. And Trump, when he wants to do it, uh, you know, has has some muscle to flex. And so nobody wants you know out of self preservation to really cross Trump, a guy who um, has this bully pulpit and this ability to draw attention to really sick his mob of supporters on to you. I think at the same time, they have to be, they have to understand, I mean, there are a lot of these people who, as Republicans, are in very safe districts and self-preservation is really um, not that big of a worry for them if they sort of just tow the, the conservative line and the Trump line for the most part. But I think, you know, a president with a 40% approval rating um, a president who has managed to make the outgoing president, uh, after eight years, incredibly popular, um, more popular than he's been basically throughout his administration, who's succeeded somehow in making Obamacare popular for the first time ever this week, according to a poll. I mean, there there is a Trump effect sort of nationally on the public that I think is uh, has to make some of these Republicans a little nervous as they sort of you know, think they're going to about getting behind him and following in lockstep as he does a lot of things. They don't want to cross him. And yet they have to they have to recognize the fact that this is dicey territory that he could be leading them into. And I think that's the the difficult calculation they're going to have to make going forward. Eliana, I mean, it strikes me that maybe there's dicey territory in, in the future, but no one on, on Capitol Hill is particularly worried about that at this moment. Right. In terms of in terms of Trump's numbers and him leading them somewhere. Uh, uh, you know, to, to a dark political place in the future. I think that's right. Um, look, we had the two most unpopular presidential candidates in American history, so I don't think it's any surprise that Trump has the lowest approval rating of um, any incoming uh, president. Uh, because this was a tremendously negative campaign. It was historic in that sense. Um, and Obamacare has been, uh, it was 
unpopular right after it passed. It's been uh, it's been pretty unpopular. I think what Republicans are worried about is the blame for Obamacare's failures shifting to them now that they are they'll be perceived as responsible for it, even if uh, some of the fallout is um, as a result of Obamacare. They're responsible and they, now, and I think they're acutely aware of that. And uh, Democrats are already uh, starting a campaign. I, Chuck Schumer's phrase, make America sick again. You know, um, yeah, you got, I think... You wonder why Democrats didn't win right, in 2016. Right, right. <laughs> kind of uh, but, you know, I think they're acutely aware that they're going to be blamed. There's going to be, uh, you know, an aggressive Democratic effort to, to blame them. Uh, the CBO came out saying, uh, you know, 18 million people could lose their health, health insurance. So I think... Um, particularly on the issue of Obamacare, there's incredible sensitivity to people losing their health care to the cost of uh, potential uh, new costs of any replacement program and so on, uh, because Democrats are going to be litigating it. Uh, it's going to be in the news and uh, v- very aware that uh, they're the responsible party now. Na- I mean, Nancy, you know this better than anyone having covered health policy really closely. It's it is n- not good to own health health insurance policy and and you know the costs are always rising they're all which is why everyone wants to fix it right but once you own it it's it's a very difficult thing to deal with as democrats have learned over the last six years yeah i mean we've said this before on this podcast but i just feel like i in some ways like i'm i'm surprised that they started out with um you know health policy as a first thing i know that like the broad idea of repealing obamacare is very popular with trump voters but health policy like screws over politicians of both stripes so many times again you know hillary care has haunted Hillary Clinton for her entire political career, and that happened in the early 90s. You know, Paul Ryan's cuts to uh, Medicare were a major uh, sticking point for him in the 2012 presidential campaign with uh, Mitt Romney. And in general, just like taking entitlements away from people when they've already had them tends not to work. You know, George Bush's attempt to privatize Social Security in his first term, he expended a lot of political capital on that, and that really sank him. So I think that that's a tricky uh, place to start. But I think just more broadly, when I talk to transition people, they feel like they're not that worried. The Republicans, you know, really have the House and Senate locked down. They have these state legislatures locked down. They have the White House. And I feel like they are counting on um, really threatening Senate Democrats who are up for re-election. And there are a bunch of them in 2018. They're really going to use that to try to get them to go along with a bunch of Trump's uh, policies. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point. And I think it's worth mentioning also, you know, the the Senate Republican majority, the House Republican majority, they all have just won victories of their own, you know, especially after reading for much of uh, 2016 about how and and being told by some of their own advisors about how Trump was going to sink them. Uh, But, you know, the ones who are there obviously won election, they won re-election, they have their own little local mandates to to, to work with at this point. And, you know, I don't expect uh, that they're going to be scared off from doing anything for a little while. It is kind of funny, though, to, to go back and look at some of the headlines from 2009, 2010. There's a, a Fox News headline, that Obama's 47% approval, lowest of any president at this point from December 2009, and discussing its potential impact on passing legislation for the rest of the, the, the second year of his term. And, uh, you know, we could get there at some point, but the, it, we're, we're certainly not there at, at this moment. I think it's fair to say Obamacare has been a political albatross for the president for for several years since it was enacted, and I think taking it away from him and and like Nancy said, you know whoever's responsible for this entire marketplace where costs are inevitably going to keep rising, right? That's politically risky. But this is another example of politics and policy 
being in misalignment. I mean, it's it's not surprising to see Republicans, um, you know, going after this immediately and trying to do this quickly when you step back and you remember that they have politicized this and weaponized this very effectively for years by simplifying it and by saying we're going to repeal this thing. It's terrible. You know, I mean, it's not it's it's very complicated, right? There are people in the in healthcare who look at this and even if they see all the flaws with Obamacare, they worry about repealing something so quickly, taking something away from people that a lot of people have gotten used to. Um, and so it's not surprising you see them going after this, though, because they've created this froth among you know, Republicans, the people who voted for them, and not even just Republicans, people who have had issues with their own health care, looking at the system, seeing it still deeply flawed and wanting something fixed, right? But when you tell people, we can fix it, we have a plan, it's going to work, right? Chances are it's going to take a long time, there are going to be kinks in this, um, and, and we'd all be better off if they proceeded with caution and proceeded more slowly and, and, and ironed this out. But because it's so infused with politics, that's not going to happen. And I think that, you know, the policy will probably suffer as a result. I think if there if there is one effect that, that Trump's approval rating might have on on anything right now, it's it's more likely to be on Democrats and intra-democratic politics. And maybe there there's some parallels here to what happened to Republicans in 2009, 2010, where they found this rallying point that they were missing a little bit, right, Eliana? Of, and, and they were able to rally the party around opposition to uh, then, you know, the new President Obama and, and you know, this kind of new class of uh, up-and-coming Republicans uh, kind of made their names in, in opposition to uh, the president. We're already seeing some, some Democrats attempting to, to do the same with President-elect, now President Trump. You know, the, the Washington Free Beacon, the conservative news site, they named o Obama a 2016 Man of the Year because he w and said he was a transformational president and that he revitalized the Republican Party. He was a transformational president for the Republican Party, which uh, gained majorities in, uh, in the House and the Senate under his leadership. And the Republican Party did, uh, you know, it, it saw in 2010 Marco Rubio um, and lots of uh, young governors elected um, in 2012, Ted Cruz elected. Um, and so the, the Republican Party saw sort of a replenishing of its ranks um, after being totally decimated in, in 2008, uh, all that in, in the Obama era. And I'm I think it will be fascinating to see what happens to Democrats in the post-Obama era. Um, the party obviously uh, saw a real thinning of its ranks getting crushed in the midterm elections in, in the Obama era while having these um, incredible policy successes in many ways. Um, so, you know, will Trump be a rallying point of opposition and will we see uh, the sort of young aspirational uh, figures that came into the Republican ranks in the Obama era. Um, I think it remains to be seen, but it's certainly a possibility. Uh, Cory B Booker taking on took on kind of a newfound uh, prominence uh, during these um, confirmation hearings. But uh, who who else will pop up? Um, I think the Democrats suffered for not having um, a bigger bench during this election. Um, but what will happen in the next four years, I think, will be really one of the most interesting stories of the Trump presidency. I think we can wrap it up there. Uh, thank you all very much for uh, joining us. Thank you, Eli Stokels. Thank you. Nancy Cook, thanks for being here again. Oh, thanks for having me. And Eliana Johnson, thank you for joining the Nerdcast. Thank you. 
Thank you as well to our listeners. Please send in your questions if you have one to nerdcast at politico.com. We'd love your feedback as well. And again, uh, please subscribe, rate us, and write a written review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app if you can. And also a big thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, and Nerdcast researcher extraordinaire and Politico producer, Zach Montalaro. We will talk to you guys next week. <laughs>